Let me ask you to turn your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 6. I want you to stay open to that because we're going to work our way through that uh, during our message today. So I'm not going to read it all up front as uh, we will be reading it in, in sections in just a moment. In my previous church in Atlanta, I was burglarized. Now, it was actually in the church, and this is, this is the way that it happened. Um, one day, uh, a woman came walking into my office. I had uh, the door closed. A woman just walked into my office. She saw me, and I saw her. We were both kind of startled. Uh, at the time, our offices, mine was on one floor, and uh, the others were on a, a different floor. And when she saw me there, she asked me a question. Now, she was either well prepared or she was thinking quickly, but uh, we had another building at the church. And she said, uh, I was wondering about this uh, covenant house over here, what that ministry was, and so on. I said, Okay. And I told her what we used the covenant house for. Well, figured out later that uh, she was kind of looking around in our building because. At some later point, uh, she walked into my office, and I wasn't there, and uh, she took uh, my wallet, which, why was it sitting, don't ask me why it was not in my pocket, but uh, uh, it was in my coat jacket, and she took uh, that and my 12-string guitar and uh, some other little things. Now, they caught her. Uh, at another church doing a similar thing. And I guess the, you know, if there's any funny part of this, it is that uh, uh, the Boy Scouts were meeting at that church and they saw her and they ran her down. So, uh, <laughs> I never got, uh, I never got the uh, guitar back. And I had had it for many years and used it all the time while I was working with youth and, and that kind of a thing. Uh, and that wasn't the end of the world. It's just, you know, it's just a possession. But I will admit that there was kind of a strange feeling. I knew that they had quickly, I'm sure, taken it to a pawn shop or something like that, and someone else had it. But it was kind of a strange feeling. And you who have been uh, burglarized, you know this feeling of somebody somewhere is sitting there enjoying my guitar. And it's my guitar. And if you've lost jewelry or other personal possessions or something, I see a number of you nodding, you know that that's just kind of a a strange feeling. Well, in this passage, Solomon is about to talk Uh, further about frustrations that he has in this life. But one of the things that he talks about is a stranger that comes in. Some of your versions may say a, a foreigner that comes in and is enjoying that which Solomon felt like he should have been enjoying. Now, it's a little bit of a mysterious 
part of this passage. But I think what I just said has something to do with it. That's one of the frustrations in this life. When someone else is enjoying that which you think you're entitled to. You've sought it. And someone else comes in and begins to enjoy it. He talks about, like he has in the first part of this book, the frustrations of this life. This is almost, this uh, chapter is almost a summary chapter. He goes back to some of the things he said before, or alluded to, or categories that he's talked about, and he reminds us of the frustration he has. Look at verse 1. He says, there is an evil that I have seen under the sun that lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. This, <clears throat> this uh, journal that we've called it of Ecclesiastes, I think you could subtitle it the journal of a frustrated man or something like that. And what he is saying here actually had come true in his life, some background to that verse. God had promised Solomon back in Second uh, Chronicles 1 verse 12 God made this promise. Wisdom and knowledge are granted to you. I will also give you riches, possessions, and honor, such as none of the kings uh, who were before you and none after you shall have the like. Now that was fulfilled in Solomon's life. He had this wisdom. He had uh, all of these possessions. He had all of this Wealth, but he's somehow not able to enjoy it. They were being enjoyed, as he says, by a foreigner, by a stranger. And he he doesn't even define that. He doesn't, doesn't even explain it. Some of the commentators that have looked at that to try to figure out what is this stranger Some of the commentators say, and I don't think this is too much of a stretch, they they say that's not just another person enjoying something of yours, but it could be most anything that comes into your life that perhaps is not expected or planned for that begins to steal your joy in some way. kinds of things could that be? Well, it could be an illness, some other kind of debilitating problem. It could be relationship conflict, marital conflict, trouble with children, any number of things things that come into our life that somehow begin to to steal our joy. 
a joy that, that we think we are somehow entitled to. I've known people that have worked all their life for retirement, who have planned well, who have saved well, and who have looked forward to that time when they would spend that retirement perhaps with their spouse, with their family, and then one of them dies. You've known people like that too. And that's when the question comes. Was all that useless? All that, all that planning, all of that good stewardship, all of our life, was it useless? And that's the frustration that we can have in this life. Not all of us, not all the time, but virtually all of us at some time. He goes on and talks about some of the futile attempts at at satisfaction. And and these are some of the things that he said before. He adds some new ones, uh, some of the things that he's tried adding to his life. Uh, Again, almost like a summary. Verse 3, he says, he talks about having children. Um, If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, so that the days of his years are many, but his soul's not satisfied with life's good things, he also has no burial. I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. A man fathers a hundred children? Where does that come from? Oh, wait a minute. Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines. Could have easily, maybe more, terms that. By the way, the scripture does not endorse 700 wives or any concubines. But that's what he had. And so... Yes, he could have had many children. Now, you know how pro-life and pro-child, pro-children we are here at St. Andrew's Presbyterian. We are unashamed of that. But I will tell you, even though we see them as a gift of God, they are not to be worshipped. And children are not the answer to problems. Some people have tried that in their marriage. If only we could have a child, then maybe our relationship would get better. And it doesn't work that way. He says, in his persistent inability to enjoy the the fruit of his toil... He says in verse 3, I say that a stillborn child is better off than the person I've just described. By the way, the person he just described was his own experience. He said, when you're at that point, it's better to have not been born. To have been born dead is what he's saying. That's how bad it is. That's how frustrating it was to him. And then he 
He talks about adding years to one's life, uh, the first part of verse 6. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to the one place. Even if you live, he's saying, 2,000 years. You know, some people think, well, if, if so-and-so just live longer, or if I could just live forever. Now, come on, really? He says, you live 2,000 years. It's not going to be, if one can't enjoy it, it's, it's worse. It's doubly worse. And after all, what happens? If you live 10 years or 2,000 years, you all wind up in the grave. All of mankind recognizes that. This, this is not a Christian theory. Now, what goes on beyond the grave, that's where we differ. But everyone recognizes that that's the end of this life. Some become obsessed with living longer. I read this week that uh, the, the whole industry of, and this is because of us baby boomers that are uh, quickly getting old. I look around and all the baby boomers look old. I don't know. It's, that's just the way it is. But the baby boomers are obsessed with not looking their age and with living longer. You know, you go to the gyms, you go to a health club, and people are obsessed in there. And most of them look like me that are in there. And when I go to one too. But look, I, I know this. I can't add a single second to my life. But that's okay. Because of what we will see later. Who's in charge of how long our life is. But because of the baby boomers, it's an $88 billion business. If you have any doubt how obsessed we are. But some become so obsessed that they lose their enjoyment of this life. And then he goes on and talks about something he had talked about earlier, and that's hard work. Verse 7, all the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. The word translated appetite literally could be translated soul. Soul just is not filled up. That's for the workaholic that thinks, if I just work longer, if I achieve more. And Solomon, remember, he'd already ruled that out. He said, it doesn't work that way. I did that. I worked longer. I achieved everything I hoped to achieve. And way beyond that, he did that because God saw fit to give it to him. But he said, once I got it, it didn't satisfy me. And then he goes on, talks about good education or wisdom or common sense. Verse 8, for what advantage has the wise man over the fool? What does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself uh, before the living? That common sense kind of or, or a, a wisdom kind of thing. 
Solomon, back in chapter 2, had talked about how empty that was. Not that it's not good to have uh, learning and wisdom and common sense. That's all good. But when that's the end, when that's all you're aiming for, when you begin to achieve it, you will find there's no satisfaction in that. And then verse 9. Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. Now, what is the sight of the eyes? How's that being better than the wandering of the appetite? I think the easiest way to understand that is it's the whole idea of of the greener grass syndrome. The sight of the eyes. What you have. You know, the tendency for, you know, the whole idea of the greener grass is that uh, the animal that's grazing over here and he looks over in the next pasture and there's a fence there. And it doesn't matter how good this grass is, that grass over there looks greener. It looks better. And that can happen to you in your job in your marriage, in your church, any of those things. But the fact is, for the animal, if he finally breaks through the fence and he gets over there and he says, he realizes it's not any greener. It looked greener, but it it isn't. In fact, usually realize it's not as green as that which he has. Now, he, he goes on in the next few verses, and he begins to talk about what I've called in the outline a fruitful perspective of reality. Now, some have seen the end of verse 9 as the end of the first half of the book. And I think that's legitimate. We're, we're kind of at a turning point here. And some see the next couple of verses as, as uh, that which the next part of the book's going to explain. We're just going to touch on it for a few moments today, that whole idea of this perspective. Reality begins with a right view of who God is and who man is. Now, I've said it over and over from this pulpit and in my teaching that right theology should have a right, a good impact on our lives. And wrong or bad theology is going to have a, a bad impact upon us. So what theology is here that pertains to us and to our lives? Verse 10, whatever has come to be has already been named. God has all authority, starting with who God is. He has all authority. He is sovereign. He has all power. He knows all. He is everywhere. In the scripture, and trying to explain what it says here about having already been named, Uh, especially in the Old Testament, the act of naming was a sign of authority over the thing that was named. 
For instance, uh, probably the easiest one to think of is, is in Genesis, uh, where the animals, God brought all the animals to Adam to do what? To name them. And it showed that, that uh, humans had dominion over the animals. Well, who named Adam? God. And we, we see that as uh, his authority. Psalm 147, God names the stars. And he also named Adam. The point that Solomon is, is making is that God is sovereign. He's all-powerful. He's in control. When Solomon calls uh, uh, the stranger that comes and invades our lives to rob us of joy, it's the fact that God is sovereign that makes the difference. So this, this stranger comes in. Something comes into our life. Well, if we think that it's that stranger or that thing that's in control, then we're in trouble. However, if God is in control, as our verse of the year says, if we believe that we can know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. If we can know that, then it makes a difference when that stranger comes in to rob us of the joy. Because that stranger is not the creator of the universe, is not the dominant one. So we see that God has all authority or God is sovereign. That's one part of the theology. The other is that man isn't sovereign. Now that sounds so obvious, but that's important theology. A theology of God and a theology of man. Uh, The second part of verse 10. It's known what man is and that he's not able to dispute with the one stronger than he. Evidence is abundant. It's clear. Man is inconsistent. Man is often weak, limited in knowledge. Our actions can be futile. I remembered a a quote this week, and you know, one of the great things about computers, uh, when I first started preaching, I couldn't have, I couldn't have done this, you know, 30 years ago, I didn't have a computer for one thing, but uh, I remembered a quote And I thought, oh, that would fit here. And so I got on the computer and I I Googled the quote. I just typed it in and and Googled it. And I thought that the quote would be from one of my wonderful theology books, you know, that's in my library or something, or from, uh, you know, C.S. Lewis or or, uh, some great philosopher and the quote was actually from the movie Rudy. And, <laughs> and it was from the character Father Kavanaugh in, in Rudy. And, but it stuck in my mind, and it was a great quote. It's not a good source, but it's a good quote. Uh, he said this, Father Kavanaugh is talking with with Rudy, this uh, undersized football player that wanted to play at Notre Dame. It's a great movie. And uh, 
he's, he's talking to him when he's kind of discouraged. And Father Kavanaugh says, son, in 35 years of religious study, I've only come up with two hard, incontrovertible facts. There is a God, and I'm not him. Now, you can say my pastor said that so that you don't have to say Father Kavanaugh from Rudy said that. I'm sure some theologian said that first. If you find it, let me know because I'd rather quote them than, uh, than the movie. But it is a great quote. It's important that we remember that's good theology. There is a God and I'm not him. That's a right theology of man. And he goes on and gives an application of that in the second part of verse 10. I've already read it. But the point being that arguing with God is a waste of time and effort. He says, and it is known what man is and what he is not able to dispute, that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage of man? Now, he... he, doesn't he's not saying and the bible does not say don't argue with god because god can't handle that or he doesn't like people that argue with him or anything like that look don't worry about god he can take care of himself and if you need to say something to god you can say it to him He can handle it. But Solomon is saying it's not going to accomplish a whole lot. He's sovereign. And I'm not. And that's where we need to remember. And and it will make a difference in terms of what we want to argue with him about when we realize who he is. So, three applications here, really. One is, I think it's important that we identify the stranger or foreigner in our life that is coming in and trying to rob us of joy. Whether it's illness or broken relationship or financial problems or a haunting past or your job, or dissatisfaction, or no job, whatever it is that that is busting into the office of your life in order to take something from you. Know, Know what it is. But don't stop there. Because here's the context. Identify who God is. What? (laughs) Who God is? Yeah, you've got to decide what you're going to believe about his character. And you need to decide it not after the stranger has burst into your office, into your life, but decide now... Is God good or is he not good? Because you you don't want to define God 
by the circumstances you're in right now or when that stranger comes in. You don't figure out what kind of God he is by looking at your circumstances. Instead, you can look at your circumstances and interpret them in light of who God is. And if he is really, if he really is a good God who really cares about his children, who works for the good of those who love him, those who are called according to his purpose, if he is really that God, then our circumstances will look a whole lot different. And they will not take control of us. And then the other application is because of that. If, if, you, if you choose to believe what the Bible says, then you can relax in the fact that you're not God <laughs> because the pressure's off. You're not sovereign. Quit acting like you are. And the pressure will be off of you in terms of dealing with life. When the frustration of seeking satisfaction this life finally gets to you, and you know what? As your pastor, I hope it does. I pray. I pray that if you're trying to find your satisfaction in some of the things that have been listed today or, or any other thing in this world, I pray that you'll come to the end of that and you'll be so frustrated you can't handle it any longer. But I want you to know this. When you get to that point, you may be very near finding real satisfaction. C.S. Lewis dealt with that in Mere Christianity. He said, Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exist. A baby feels hunger. Well, there's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there's such a thing as water. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that doesn't prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. You get it? You see, it was at that point when C.S. Lewis found the real thing, the Lord Jesus Christ. It was even in his frustration that Solomon was found by God. And may it draw us to the only one who can satisfy that longing in our soul. Not any of the 
things of this world, not any of the accomplishments of this world, but only Jesus Christ. Let's bow together. Lord, the, the message is the same over and over in this book. The frustration of this life, and yet that we don't have to live ultimately in that. Will you draw us to the only one who can satisfy that hole in our heart, that hole in our soul that we're trying to fill with other things? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.